You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and projects. And today we've got an interesting topic lined up, one that we've never really formally discussed on here, but it, it's a fascinating one. How many of you have uh, in your defensive resurrection said, well, you know, the apostles, aside from maybe John, they were all willing to die. They all went to their deaths. None of them recanted their faith. They all died for Jesus. And then you get caught fat forwards when asked, okay, where's the evidence? Now, for some of the apostles, you can make a pretty good case, but can you do that for all of them? Are there some questions about if some of them really did die of their faith or not? And if they did, what difference does it make? To answer those questions, I've got the author of a book, The Fate of the Apostles, which was his PhD dissertation, Sean McDowell, here on the show. He is a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church, and in particular, young people, to make the case of a Christian faith. He connects with audiences in a tangible way through humor and stories by imparting hard evidence and logical support for viewing all areas of life with a biblical worldview. Sean is an assistant professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University, and he is a resident scholar for Summit, California. Sean still teaches one high school Bible class which helps give him exceptional insight into prevailing culture so he can impart his observations poignantly to fellow educators, pastors, and parents alike. In 2008, he received the Educator of the Year Award for San Juan Capistrano, California. The Association of Christian Schools International awarded exemplary status for his apologetics training. Sean is listed among the top 100 apologists. He graduated summa cum laude from Talbot Theological Seminary with a double master's degree in theology and philosophy. He earned a Ph.D. in Apologetics and Worldview Studies from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2014. Traveling throughout the United States and abroad, Sean speaks at camps, churches, schools, universities, and conferences. He has spoken for organizations including Focus on the Family, the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Backyard Skeptics, Crew, Youth Specialties, Hume Lake Christian Camps, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and the Association of Christian Schools International. Sean has also appeared as a guest on radio shows such as Family Life Today, Point of View, Stand to Reason, Common Sense Atheism, and The Hugh Hewitt Show. Sean has been quoted in many publications, including the New York Times. Sean is the author, co-author, or editor of over 18 books, including The Fate of the Apostles, A New Kind of Apologist, The Beauty of Intolerance, Same-Sex Marriage, A Thoughtful Approach to, John's de- to God's Design for Marriage of John Stone Street, is God just a human invention with Jonathan Merrill <clears throat> and understanding intelligent design along with William A. Dembski? Sean has also written multiple books with his father, Josh McDowell, including The Unshakable Truth, More Than a Carpenter, and an update for evidence that demands a verdict. Sean is the general editor for the Project Study Bible for Students. He has also written for Youth Worker Journal, Decision Magazine, and the Christian Research Journal. Follow the dialogue with Sean as he blogs regularly at seanmcdowell.org. In April 2000, Sean married his high school sweetheart, Stephanie. They have three children and live in San Juan Capistrano, California. Sean played 
college basketball at Biola University and was a captain his senior year on his team that went 37. So, uh, Dr. McDowell, welcome to the program. Nick, thanks so much for having me. This is this is a treat. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about how did you get to be doing what you're doing exactly? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in a home, you mentioned my father, Josh McDowell, who's yes. been in apologetics for about the last half century or so. But mm -hmm. they, my parents never put expectation on me to be in apologetics. I wasn't planning on it. I was going to probably teach high school, be a youth pastor, and coach basketball were my mm -hmm. thoughts. But a couple things. Number one was some of my own questions and doubts in college. I really mm -hmm. realized were apologetics related. I started to realize, man, I've got some real questions. And so does the rest of my generation and other young people. Mm -hmm. And then second, my senior year at Biola, I took a class with J.P. Moreland, mm -hmm. and I had learned historical apologetics from my father, but this is the first time I really grasped some of the philosophy behind intelligent design, the philosophy of mind, arguments from beauty, and it just it captivated me. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do the M.A. Phil program at Biola and just started to realize that I love this regardless of my family certainly encouraged me in that direction, but mm -hmm. this is what interests me. This is fun. These are my questions and decided to teach and pursue a PhD and start speaking and writing and kind of ended up where I am here now at Biola. Well, that's interesting. I'd like to ask you something. It's not kind of a main topic, but I've heard a story that you started having doubts and you went to your dad saying you were starting to doubt Christianity and he gave a response but a lot of parents are probably shocked to hear what he said, right? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about this. I, uh, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, but my dad's written his book, Evidence It Demands a Verdict, is one of the most influential apologetic books mm -hmm. really of the 20th century. And he just led a movement of apologetics and has committed his life to defending truth. And when I was, I think, about 19... Towards the end of my freshman year at Biola, if I remember exactly, mm -hmm. I remember thinking, gosh, I got questions. Do I really believe this? I don't think I stopped believing, but I had some really yeah. serious questions and doubts for the first time. And I went to my dad. We're in Breckenridge, Colorado, and we just went out for coffee. And I just said, Dad, I want to know the truth, but I'm not sure that I'm convinced Christianity is really true. Not knowing what he'd say. And I remember he looked at me and goes, son, I think that's great. And I remember thinking... <laughs> Yeah, that was my response. It kind of chuckled like that, thinking, why would that be great? Did you hear what I said? And he goes, well, I sense you want to know truth. You can't live your life on my convictions. You know your mom and I will love you no matter what. That doesn't change. And look, he said, don't reject Christianity just to be a rebel. Only reject it if you're convinced it's not true. Mm -hmm. And that was a really kind of freeing, formative experience for me to say, all right, that's it. I'm... And even at that stage, I wasn't planning on going to apologetics or planning on telling that story. It was just honestly where I was. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't an overnight like, oh, my goodness, I had a revelation. It was just slow, step-by-step, -step, gaining confidence. The Bible's true. Christianity makes sense mm -hmm. of the world. The resurrection happened. God exists. And developing my own convictions from, from that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's so important because so many parents were panicked when their children come to them in doubt, that it's really great to give them the freedom to doubt and say, hey, explore this, see what you can find out. Go ahead, look. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because a lot of Christians and many leaders 
are afraid when students doubt. Mm-hmm. And to me, whenever a student comes to me and says they doubt, because even though I'm at Biola, I still teach high school part-time, yeah. our response is consistently to say, I think that's fantastic, good for you. Yep. Now that catches them off guard because I want to do a couple things. I want to tell them, hey, I'm okay with your doubts. And number two, help them see that this is an opportunity to grow and own your own faith. So we need to stop being afraid of doubts and realize that, look, if there's any religion that can tackle doubts, it's actually Christianity because we have good reason to believe that it's true. Yeah, I like to say whenever the topic of doubt comes up, say if I meet someone who never doubts their faith, they're just not taking it seriously. Well said. Now let's start talking about the book here. Now, I'm going to start kind of at the opposite end where you started by asking, what difference does it make? Why should we care about what happened to the apostles? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say on a couple levels it matters. Number one, nobody's had a greater influence on the history of the world, at least arguably, not only just in religion, but how we view governments and nations and live our lives than Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, even non-believers would at least put him in the top five. And nobody spent more time with him than the apostles did. They're the ones who took his message. Jesus didn't write any books directly, purely as a human being. Mm-hmm. So how we know about his life is passed on by the apostles. Mm-hmm. It's a massive interest and importance in their lives and what happened to him. Now, when it comes to their fates, why that matters is because the apostles, from the earliest moment forward, to be a follower of Jesus was to believe that he had risen from the grave. That's what it means to be a Christian. In the early stockings we have, like the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, we see this idea that if you are a follower of Jesus, you believe he died, was buried, and actually appeared to people. Mm. So the resurrection is at the heart of this, and of course one question we naturally have is, can we trust the testimony of these men? Do mm-hmm. we have reason to believe that what they write is true, or at least we have reason to believe that they think that what they wrote is true? So if these men are willing to suffer, if they're willing to die for their belief that they had seen the risen Jesus, then this gives us some at least good reason to think that they're being sincere, and at least that they didn't make it up. Yeah, but you know, you can find Buddhist monks who set themselves on fire and protest the government, or Islamic terrorists who are willing to fly into buildings, or be suicide bombers, or Christians who recite ISIS. No, we will not recant and be willing to die for their faith. So people die for things that are false all the time. I think that's right. So the key is to point out that Mm -hmm. their willingness to die doesn't prove that it's true. Right. The fact that they die as martyrs, or at Mm -hmm. least were willing to suffer, and some of them die as martyrs, Mm -hmm. doesn't tell us Christianity is true. It tells us that they really believed it, and they were sincere. Now, here's the difference between Buddhists lighting themselves on fire and Muslim radicals is these examples of and I'm not even going to call them Muslim martyrs. I think they're murderers. I don't think they qualify as martyrs, but nonetheless, they are dying for something at best that they would have received secondhand. Now, it's probably third, fourth, fifth, sixth hand. They're not actually willing to die for something they witnessed something they saw, they touched, they heard, they're dying for a story passed on to them by somebody else. The Mm -hmm. apostles, on the other hand, are not dying for a secondhand faith. 
they're dying for what they claimed to have seen with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't true, either the skeptic has to give some other reason for the origin of that belief and explain, no, here's actually why they came up to, to believe it. Or we make this huge exception in history and conclude that the apostles willingly suffered and were willing to die for something they knew was false. And that's a tough pill to swallow. So, for mm-hmm. example, look, if somebody walks into my, if I'm speaking or if I'm teaching and says, hey, Sean McDowell, put the gun to my head. Do you really believe Jesus rose from the grave? Mm-hmm. And I say yes. And they shoot me and kill me on the spot. All that proves, Nick, is people would walk away and go, wow. Sean really believed it. He had firm convictions Christianity is true. But that would provide no evidence within itself that Christianity is true because I didn't witness it with my own eyes. The apostles, on the other hand, witnessed it or at least claimed to witness it with their own eyes, willingly suffer. That shows the depth of their sincerity distinctly for the claim that Jesus rose from the grave. Well, now we have to get to the question of did they willingly suffer, did they in fact die for what they believed. Now, you set out some criteria for how you go about examining this case historically. Can you give us a brief rundown of what you're looking for when you start to examine the claims? Yeah, good question. So I had to set up kind of a historical grid and historical approach to assess sources Mm -hmm. and explain to my readers and the scholarly community how I come up with the conclusions that I come up with. So I decided to follow a model laid out by uh, Marcus Bachmule, mm-hmm. an Oxford uh, New Testament scholar, of something he calls the living memory. And essentially what he means is the time of Christ, or the first time of the apostles, until really about the end of the second century, about AD 200, 200 maybe spilling on roughly into the early third century. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he's saying it's within the first three generations of people who had seen the risen Jesus themselves. And he says within that time frame, you still have a living memory that's being passed on of stories from one generation to the next that is not too far removed where things can begin to be radically and substantially changed. Now, that doesn't mean everything within that window is true. Right. That doesn't mean everything outside of that window is false. Right. But it sets up a historical grid to at least publicly make your criteria known and have a standard how to assess things. So I used that living memory, and then I just looked at the quantity and the quality of the sources that were available, whether biblical, non-biblical, whether Christian, Jewish, Gnostic, and then tried to just assess them based upon a probability scale that I used. And the probability scale was essentially a nine-point scale from the least probable historically to the most probable historically. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, from – because when you deal with history, you're not dealing with certainty. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with probability. Right. And there is some subjective assessment that's made here. I mean, when I look at Peter and Thomas and the other apostles, there's scholars all over the map. And I try to just make my evidence publicly known and then assess them and, you know, whether they're in the living memory or not mm-hmm. and give my probability of their deaths and then and, and rate them and mm-hmm. what people think. So that's that's more of my approach to this. 
yeah, we've uh, interviewed Mike Lacona on here before, my father-in-law, and when he wrote about his book on the resurrection of Jesus, he used a similar kind of approach to me, talk about events that were incredibly probable or probable and such, and I mean, there are a few things that in history that we still say are absolute certain, but you can't come up with like a mathematical proof for it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and Mike was actually my outside reader. Mm-hmm. And there were many times I was on the phone with him and emailing him, just kind of saying, all right, how'd you come up with this? What do you think about this? He gave me some really good guidance along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but his framework in his book on the resurrection of Jesus, which I use as a text in my resurrection class at Biola, mm-hmm. is just a, it's a fantastic example if anything, I think you could almost criticize Mike for being too conservative in his book mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because he's just trying to err on the side of not overstating his case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I, I aim to do that with, with my research as well, kind of the same mm-hmm. spirit in which he approached the resurrection as a whole. Mm-hmm. And now let's start looking at the cases that we have. Now, something that surprised me is in some cases, there just really isn't good information on the deaths of the apostles, is there? Yeah, you're right about that. When I first started researching this, at the very beginning, I kind of assumed, because I had heard this argument so often in church, in popular apologetics books, on websites, where people would just say, as if it's a matter of fact, 11 of the 12 apostles died as martyrs, except for John, who died a natural death. I mean, growing up, I heard that so much, Nick, I just assumed it was true. Right. I first started researching this, I thought, oh, well, at least we'll be able to show with confidence that this is true. But then as I started to delve into it a little bit further, I started to realize, oh, my goodness, for a lot of these guys, this is really late, and it's contradictory, and it's unclear. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to do with this. So a lot of it really is kind of, it's late, and we can, you know, we can get to that if you want to, but I think mm-hmm. a way to look at this is if you look at the lists of the apostles, such as you find in Luke 6, Matthew 10, and Mark 3, you see these different lists of the apostles, and Peter is always at the top of the list, and then close to that are James and John and Andrew, And then you have this middle tier that usually includes Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And then you have the last four, which Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, um, I'm forgetting who are the last four off the top of my head. Uh, Judas Iscariot would be one of them. Oh, Judas is always listed last. And And then there was another James and John. And then James and the other, yeah, that's right. Well, those, what's interesting is it's almost like Richard Bauckham says these, the list of the 12 were in sets of four in a ways, even though they might vary in the order within those four, they're consistently in that order. Mm-hmm. And the top tier, no surprise, were the most prominent apostles that were the closest to Jesus. We have the best evidence for those. The middle tier, it's a little hit and miss, a little bit late. It's hard to know where legend ends. You know, history ends and legend begins. Mm-hmm. And then the last four, except for Judas Iscariot, of course, right. some of that stuff is so late, I'm not sure we can have any confidence what happened to some of those mm-hmm. apostles. 
And, of course, there are two others that are talked about in your book that technically weren't part of the Twelve, but that's Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. It was one of the initial questions I had to ask in this research is exactly who do I want to study? Mm-hmm. Because I could have gone further and studied Luke. I could have started studied Barnabas. Uh, there's traditions about Mary and her fate, um, traditions about Mark. And I thought, well, I'm going to keep this tight and stick with the 12, obviously Matthias instead of Judas Iscariot. But then James and Paul also claimed to have been eyewitnesses. And they're so central in the early church that it would be worth studying them. So essentially, my research was over the 12 apostles and then including James and Paul, who are apostles, but not members of the original 12. I haven't looked into Mark and Luke really that closely, but from my outside perspective, I think they also are pretty late, third, fourth, fifth century, really tough to know if we can trust those accounts as well. You know, if anyone's interested in that, really fascinated by this, maybe there's a possible research project for you sometime. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm glad you said that. There's, if any people listen who want to write a thesis or want to do some scholarly work, I think there's probably some further work that could be done on the apostles. You'd have to probably read my book closely mm-hmm. and maybe pick one or two of the apostles and just probing it further. And I'll tell you, it's tough. Yeah. Finding some of the sources for this, Nick, was a really mm-hmm. interesting method. I tried everything. I started by just Googling. I looked for scholars. I did searches in every academic journal kind of search I could think of. I looked for scholarly books. I emailed scholars around the world. I cited footnotes. For Bartholomew, there's traditions that he went to Armenia. So I got on the phone with like the archdiocese of the Armenian Armenian church in Southern California. I mean, I just tracked down it, it was like a detective project. Half of my work was just trying to find sources that related to these guys. So if you decided to do this research, and there's probably some more that needs to be done, um, you'd have to really take a detective approach and be willing to kind of tread where nobody has treaded before. Yeah, I, I find it interesting about how some things that there's more can be found, because I remember reading your chapter on Thaddeus, and how he went to a king, supposedly, who had requested healing from from Jesus, and Jesus had supposedly written this king a letter. And I read it, and I thought, that, that seems familiar. And I emailed you and said, have you ever heard of this book about the Shroud of Turin? And I interviewed the author, Mark Antonacci, back in February, if anyone's interested, because he has an account about Thaddeus coming and bringing the Shroud with him. And I, there's just so so many things like that that you could probably find some off-reference that you might not have even known existed. It's, oh, this could be a little clue here. Well, that that's interesting to hear you say that because there's kind of two ways that you can approach mm-hmm. um, studying the fate of the apostles. One would be to go search the graves where they originally, or, or at least the claims are that they were buried, to go find the oldest sources in these different countries and traditions that have been passed on. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to India. I didn't go to Greece. I didn't go to Armenia. I I analyze this from a literary perspective. 
Mm-hmm. But there's a, another book that came out a few months ago by a fellow. He's a skeptic named Tom Bissell, and it's just called Apostle. Mm-hmm. And he goes and he travels among these different tombs and really does research on site and talks about these traditions. Mm-hmm. And he kind of dismisses all of them. And I'm skeptical about a lot of these traditions for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, nobody's really probed into some of these and done a scholarly assessment of them mm-hmm. and see and to see what they would find. So. The other amazing thing is I've had people like you email me that I've had people contacting me and saying, oh, do you know about this tradition? Do you know about that tradition? It just it's yeah. almost like out of the woodworks. People have come out of these ancient traditions. I simply had no idea of, mm-hmm. of these different countries that really believe that they have stories. Of the apostles. Now, the hard part about this, as you can imagine, Nick, is that some of these countries and these people hold on to these traditions it's their identity. It's their history. So if you come in there like, hey, I just need some evidence and I'm not sure I believe this, you know, that's potentially seen as threatening and undermining these traditions they hold on to. So you just got to be really yeah. careful how you, you would do that. Well, I'd like to remind everyone we're going to have a little bit of a shorter show today due to Dr. McDowell's schedule. Right now we're talking with Sean McDowell about his book, The Fate of the Apostles. Now, if you're listening next week, now, we're going to have to try and rework the schedule a little bit. We're going to try and get this guy in. And this is someone that Dr. McDowell knows where. And that's going to be Tom Gilson talking about a book called Critical Conversations, How to Talk to Your Children About Homosexuality. Now, I hope to give this in. It's not guaranteed that that's what we're aiming for. You wrote before that book. Could you give a little word about it? Yeah, that's an excellent book. Tom is a friend of mine. We were actually on the phone yesterday talking about a, another potential project. And Tom has such a good balance of communicating truth and not buying into a lot of the political correctness and mm-hmm. false ideas of tolerance we, we hear today. He speaks truth very clearly and scripturally and scientifically. Mm-hmm. He does it with graciousness and kindness. So I was happy to write the forward for that book because we tend to either be harsh and shrill and speak truth unloving or compromise the truth. And he has a good balance. So this is specifically about talking about homosexuality with teenagers and with students. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that'll be a very practical show that'll get into how do we communicate this? What are the questions? How do we defend and explain and articulate? Uh, So that'll be a great show. I'll, I'll look forward to that. Well, let's get back to your book. Now, one of the main stories we hear when it comes to the death of the apostles is Peter was crucified upside down because he did not see himself worthy to die the same way as his Lord. Now, I'm sure you heard that story several times. How did your investigation turn out with that? Yeah, that, I'm glad you asked about this because I was just at an apologetics conference a couple weeks ago and one of the fellows was up there talking about Peter being crucified upside down. And I didn't want to, you know, embarrass them in front of everybody. But I thought, man, you really got to check your sources. Mm-hmm. Well, here's where that tradition comes from. The, the first reference that we have historically to the death of Peter is actually in John chapter 21, mm-hmm. where Jesus restores Peter. And he's saying, you're going to be taken where you do not want to go and your hands are going to be tied. Mm-hmm. And then it says, you know, the author of John says Jesus was explaining how he was going to die. Well, 
his hands being tied, many scholars would say that's a reference to crucifixion. It's certainly a reference that Peter was going to die. And remember, this was written in the 90s by John. Peter would have already been dead. So if John is writing about the death of Peter in the 90s, obviously an apostle who was so prominent can't write words back in in a gospel that's going to be widely accepted if it wasn't going to be believed as being true. So I think this is good reason to say that, that Peter was martyred, but it doesn't say anything about him being upside down. Now, the next sources on Peter, like Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they mention nothing about him being crucified upside down. Now, when you get the first reference to Peter being crucified upside down is a book called The Acts of Peter. Mm-hmm. And what these are is, your listeners, they're, they're interesting to read. They show up in the middle of the second century, so at least a century plus from the death of Jesus, and at least a full generation or two removed from the death of the apostles. You have the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of Thomas, Acts of Andrew, Acts of Matthias. And what these stories are, they're a little bit like some of the Gnostic texts, the the apocryphal texts where they try to fill in what happened to Jesus in his childhood, mm-hmm. and they tell these fanciful stories about Jesus, like turning, you know, creating birds out of clay and withering kids up to die who bully him. Like they try to fill in the gaps mm-hmm. the, uh, of what we don't know from the Gospels about, like the childhood of Jesus. So these apocryphal documents show up in the second century. And they start telling these fanciful stories about what happens to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about these, Nick, is I think they still retain a historical core, but they're also filled with legend. Okay, so this document, the Acts of Peter, was probably written, most scholars would say, between A.D. 180 and 190. Mm-hmm. 180 and 190. And what's in this is it has Peter going to Rome, and it's filled with these crazy miracle stories, like Jesus throwing, I'm sorry, Peter having Simon Magus fly through the air, and him healing a tuna fish, and, you know, these are kind of bizarre stories. But then, it in this account, it has Peter being crucified upside down before Nero. That's the very first account in AD 190 in this document that has some history, but is also filled with a lot of legend. Mm -hmm. The question is, can we trust this? Well, you tell me, Nick, I'm sure you've heard this. What is the typical story that people tell for why Peter was crucified upside down? Because he was not worthy to die as his Lord had. Exactly. So he says to the Roman guards, hey, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. I'm not worthy. Crucify me upside down. Now, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Roman guards took suggestions about how people wanted to be crucified? <laughs> they don't really strike me as those kinds of people. Yeah, exactly. Like, that doesn't seem, hey, would you mind not using nails? Yeah. Hey, would you mind this? Like, that, do, do you like, have an anesthetic around? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that's just not realistic. But with that said, if you read the, the Acts of Peter, the earliest account in it says that Peter is crucified upside down. Why? Because the world has been turned upside down because of sin. And when Peter is upside down, he can actually see the world as it is. And then his death, like the death of Jesus, 
will help turn the world right side up. That's the purpose of it. There's a theological purpose in this. It's not trying to make historical claim. Now, when you get into the third and fourth century, some early church fathers pick this up as history and start repeating it. Some mm-hmm. don't. So here's the bottom line. This is probably a longer answer than you wanted. It's not impossible that Peter was crucified upside down. If you read Martin Hengel's book, Crucifixion, there is precedent for people being crucified upside down. Mm-hmm. There was some flexibility for the Romans to crucify somebody as long as they made sure the person was dead. But mm-hmm. to count on this as a historical claim rather than a theological one, I, I think is at best it's possible But if I had to bank on it, I wouldn't bank on this as being really what happened historically, or at least saying we have good reason to believe this is what happened historically. I think it's probably a legend-filled theological point that's being made rather than historical fact, although I certainly would concede it could have been that way. Yeah, but does this mean that Peter didn't die for his faith, though? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, I actually think the acts of Peter is one piece of evidence within the living memory. It's still within the second century. And what you have is you have these fanciful stories. You have some legend that's clearly added in. And I think the crucifixion upside down was probably another embellishment, probably. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is they don't have Peter going to India. They don't have Peter going to Greece. He goes to Rome where he's martyred under Nero. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to the Acts of Peter, while though there's embellishment and there's legend that's added, I think it's built upon a historical core that, number one, can be established by earlier documents, and number two, was probably widely known. So if the writer of the Acts of Peter, if none of this stuff happened, he would have a hard time at least inventing some stories and having anybody give any credibility to it if he completely made up that he died a natural death, that he went to another country. So it doesn't mean he wasn't crucified. It just means the upside-down part is questionable. And mm-hmm. I actually think this document is one amidst others that gives us good reason to believe at least that Peter died as a martyr. Mm-hmm. Well, we could spend my whole show talking about Peter if we had to, but there are so many other figures to cover. Paul is another one. We're usually told that Paul was beheaded during the reign of Nero. Do you think that's likely to be true? Well, I think we have to distinguish two things. Number one is we have to distinguish how exactly, whether or not Paul was a martyr, Mm -hmm. and then second, whether or not we know how he died. Now, Paul, Paul was a Roman citizen, so Paul likely would not have been crucified because crucifixion was held for criminals of the state and for people who were not citizens. So it makes sense that he would have been beheaded. When you look at uh, uh, earlier claims, like you see what happened to James killed by the sword uh, in Acts 12-2, when you see what happened to John the Baptist, Mm -hmm. killing and beheading by the sword was a very common way that somebody would have been put to death. So I think it's, it's believable that he died that way. But in my research, it's, it wasn't primarily that important that I establish how the person died. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a recent book on the Apostle Peter by Larry Hurtado, an excellent New Testament scholar. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a book in there where the person argues that he actually was burned to death. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not sure I totally buy it, but what's interesting is he still agrees that Peter was, in fact, martyred. So all I have to establish is that Paul was willing to die mm-hmm. if the early accounts show, in fact, that he was martyred. So when it comes to Paul, obviously the New Testament doesn't report his death, right. because, unless you know John referenced him somehow, but of course he doesn't. But like you have hints in the book of Acts that Paul knew his death was imminent and he was going to be put to death. Like you see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he knew that he was going to be spilled out like a libation. And then his death when he's in prison, it's coming imminently. Now that doesn't prove it, but that gives some expectation. The first reference to Paul you find in 1 Clement chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Mm-hmm in which Paul is described as suffering greatly for his faith and then being, quote, set free from this world and transported up to the holy place, having become the greatest example of endurance. Now, when you look in the context of verse 5, um, chapter 5 of 1 Clement, it's clear that it's talking about people who are paying the greatest price, standing up against persecution and ultimately dying or being killed for their faith. And Peter's held up as the greatest example. Then you also see evidence for the mm-hmm. fate of Paul and Ignatius in the early second century, Polycarp, early second century, Dionysius of Corinth, uh, reported by Eusebius in the middle second century, Irenaeus towards the end of the second century, the Acts of Paul, Tertullian, the consistent early and unanimous testimony is that Paul made it to uh, Rome, and he died there as a martyr. Now, it, the earliest accounts don't say whether he was beheaded or not, mm-hmm. but you see that showing up in the Acts of Paul, again, in the end of the second century, and there's no theological reason that I could find that that was added. And, uh, in fact, I think that probably matches up with the facts. Now, I'll tell you something that's interesting as a side note, Nick. Mm-hmm. In the Acts of Paul, one thing I wrote, when you write a book and you publish it, people come to you afterwards and say, oh, shoot, good point. I should have included that. I actually, the Acts of Paul, when when Paul is beheaded, it describes that milk comes, a milk-type substance comes out from his neck. Right. Well, I said that's clearly legendary, and they're trying to show the sustenance of his life, what milk represents, his death, etc., and I had a doctor email me and he said, look, there's actually a strange phenomena in which sometimes milk will secrete from somebody's neck. Now, I can't explain why it happens. I'm not a doctor. And that just struck me. I mean, he sent me the documentation for it. I thought that is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't really prove whether he was beheaded or not. But whenever you do a project like this, you find out from other people afterwards, you go, wow, that is really, really fascinating. So bottom line, I think we have good, early, credible, consistent evidence to conclude that Paul, in fact, was martyred for his faith. And think about it, Nick. I mean, what does Jesus say to Paul when he's first converted? What did he say to him? Uh, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. Exactly. Doesn't it make sense? Mm-hmm. Somebody who was shipwrecked, somebody who was whipped, somebody who was stoned, starved, on and on, like you see in 2 Corinthians 11, mm-hmm. would die as a martyr. I mean, right. it fits what we know about Paul as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to make a little plug here since you mentioned Larry Hurtado. 
We are working on getting him to come on the show. He's got a new book coming out around September called Destroyer of the Gods, about what makes Christianity unique. So I am hoping to get a good interview on that one. So just keep watching for that here. And it's important. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say good for you. Mm -hmm. I already pre-ordered that book. It looks timely and interesting. Larry Hurtado is an excellent scholar. Uh-huh. It relates to the New Testament and even the Apostles as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of thing about what makes Christianity unique and such in its culture, that's just one of my main areas I really like to look at. So I just got so excited when I saw this book coming out. Now, let's talk about these, these deaths more. Peter and Paul probably died around the same time. That was quite likely when the Neronian persecution got started, wasn't it? Well, when you say the same time, I believe it was in Dionysius of Corinth. I'd have to go back and check where this almost describes that they were martyred together. Mm-hmm. And some people have said, yes, they were held up actually together and martyred. I don't think there's any early credible evidence that they died exactly at the same time. Mm-hmm. But if we mean broadly like the mid to late 60s, yeah, the Neronian persecution, then yes, that's yeah. the most reasonable time. Now, mm-hmm. there's some early evidence that Nero was mentioned in probably the early to mid 2nd century in a little bit of a cryptic kind of way. He's not explicitly listed until you get to the end of the 2nd century. But when you kind of piece all the things together, that is certainly the most reasonable time that the two of them uh, would have been martyred. Now, one offer you take on every now and then, I'd like to get your brief thoughts on this, since I mentioned Eronian persecution, is Candida Moss, since she wrote about the myth of persecution. Because, you know, Christians really weren't persecuted while we here. What do you, What do you think about that? Well... Her book, The Myth of Persecution, is a really interesting book. Candida Moss is a great scholar from Notre Dame. She's very articulate, very thoughtful. If you get to the end of that book, you kind of realize that she probably has more of a political agenda in undermining the the supposed persecution of Christians than necessarily a historical one. Um, trying to argue that Christians just have this persecution mindset that affects how they look at the world and interact with culture. I think she's on to something, but maybe takes it a little far. If you ask, I've asked a lot, and I don't mean politically, I mean historically she's on to something. If you ask a lot of Christians, what were the, what was the first and second century like? And the typical answer I've gotten is Christians were hunted down they were persecuted, they were martyred, thrown to the lions regularly just for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's probably an overstatement, in fact, almost certainly. As Candida points out in her book, persecution was actually sporadic, and it tended to be local, and existed for a small time frame. It wasn't this nonstop, top-down, national persecution for anybody who claimed Christ at least within the first couple centuries. Mm-hmm. So I think we mm-hmm. tend to see more persecution than was actually there. But with that said, I think she takes it too far to the other side right. and just tries to question <laughs> all the accounts we have in Peter, we have in Acts, the accounts we have from Tacitus. And uh, so, I, you know, broadly speaking, she overstates her case. So I'll give you an example. When she cites um, Pliny the Younger, and the letter that is written at that time, 
that that he records in the early second century, the question comes up, you know, what do we do with these Christians who won't compromise their faith? And, you know, the response is, well, ask them once, ask them twice. If they keep refusing, then give them the death that they deserve. And she says in this book, that's proof that there was no policy for how we deal with Christians who were actually proclaiming the name of Christ. So they weren't persecuted beforehand. Well, I'm not sure that follows. I can think of a modern example where somebody would still say, what are we supposed to do with these people who are breaking the law, even though we have a policy? Take, for example, two issues in particular, marijuana. Mm -hmm. There's specific laws from the federal government about dealing with marijuana, and yet still on the local level, people are like, wait a minute, how do we deal with this? Do we follow the federal government? Do we not? Do we follow local statutes? Or take the issue of immigration. People who have come here illegally have broken our laws. But how exactly are we supposed to prosecute them or deal with them or let them go or hire them? So the mere fact that there's questions and confusions about how to deal with those issues doesn't mean it hasn't been an issue for a while. It just means there's questions over how exactly do I apply those laws in my particular situation. So her pushback in the myth of persecution, I don't think that example in particular shows that there wasn't persecution. It just means that this governor, this writer at the time, is trying to figure out how exactly am I supposed to deal with this. Now, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host. I'm interviewing Sean McDowell and his book, The Fate of the Apostles. And we really depend on you around here. I mean, I, I had a good friend of a ministry donate a book yesterday buying off of my Amazon wish list, which was really nice. And things like that really help us out. Now, if you want to help the work of Deeper Waters, <clears throat> go to our website, deeperwaters.ddns.net. And there's a link to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. There's a link in there. And you click on it, and it takes you to Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You send a donation, and then you contact them, or you contact me or Allie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They'll make sure you get it. It will be tax-deductible. And if you can become a monthly donor, that's great. That's what we really need the most. You can also buy books that I've written or co-written on Amazon, such as um, Defining Inerrancy or God and Natural Disasters or Groundless, a look at Dan Barker, or one that I've solely written by myself, which is a creed for the ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed today. And, and guys, pay attention to this one. You can support us buying jewelry. Yeah, you actually can. Just go to, I don't think you can click the link, the access code is love. And you can buy something for that special lady in your life, if it's your wife. You can buy something to make up for that screw up that you recently did. Or you can buy something to make up for that screw up that you know you're going to do in the future so you don't have to stay in the doghouse. And... When you make that purchase, 25% of whatever you buy goes to support Deeper Waters. So, uh, you, you get a great deal with a lady in your life, and you get supportive ministry. And 
if you can't do that, any of these things, please pray for us. Please share the podcast, the blog with anyone you can. And go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the show. I really love seeing them. I check regularly to see what people are talking about. And, you know, if there's some topic you'd like to see addressed on the show, get in touch with me. I can I can be very open. I can be very negotiable. Uh, Dr. McDowell, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate or support? You know what? First off, I'd just like to say I'm proud of you, buddy. You do good work on your podcast. And also in in person, I think you know this, I've told you this, Mm -hmm. that uh, you're a real blessing to me and my ministry. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy to come on, and I hope your listeners, even if it's a small amount, would would give to it. I'll I'll tell you something unique I'm I'm doing, if somebody is inclined. I turned 40 a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. I decided for my 40th birthday, rather than asking for gifts or going on a trip, or buying a sports car, or doing something maybe middle-aged people do, I decided I was going to ask anybody who's going to give me a gift to donate it towards a well I wanted to raise the money for in Uganda. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who don't even have fresh water. Mm-hmm. The amount of kids that die from this is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So I put a blog up on my website, and it's just called, I'm Building a Well for My 40th Birthday. Can you help me out? And it's amazing. It costs $6,000 to build a well so people can actually just have fresh water who don't have it, the things you and I take for granted. Yeah. And I'm about 4000 there. People have been so generous. So if people are listening, even want to give 5 bucks, $10, 20 there's a people I don't even know who gave amazing gifts. I would be a blessing to me and certainly the people who uh, – who need the water. So just go to SeanMcDowell.org or Google Sean McDowell's 40th birthday well, and you'll find it, and there's a link. So if that's something you want to support, that would be a blessing to me and the and the people in Uganda. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing how we take it for granted. I've got uh, my water bottle right here. I filled it up before the show came for the show, and I just take that for granted so much. My wife has her own water bottle, so she was like, can you go fill it up for me? Just less than a minute, and we've got fresh water. And these people over here, they do anything for fresh water. So at Deeper Water's audience, let's uh, see if we can finish this off. There's just 2,000 left to go. That's right. (laughs) Okay. But let's get back to talking about the apostles here. Let's go to one who we've also got pretty good testimony on, because he's talked about in Josephus also. And that's James, the brother of Jesus. So James is a really interesting question because he wasn't one of the 12. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a brother of Jesus. And we had good reason to believe that he was not a follower of Jesus during his lifetime. How do we know that? Well, Mark 3 talks about the family of Jesus being skeptical and questionable of him. And then in John chapter 7, it talks mm-hmm. about his own family rejected and didn't believe in him. And this is the kind of stuff you wouldn't put in an account unless it was true and undeniable because of a criterion of embarrassment. Yeah, that's right. One of the worst things for a, a, a rabbi at that time was his own family to question him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was unheard of. That's why when you get to the epistles like of Paul, it's like we don't even trust it, somebody cannot be a deacon if they don't care for their family. 
So why would they make up that Jesus' family and brothers don't believe in him? But then all of a sudden you have Peter becoming the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And Acts talks about this. First Corinthians 15 talks about James having an appearance of Jesus and clearly becomes a follower of his. Well, that in itself is testimony of, you know, his conversion for the resurrection. But then when you look at James, you have reported by Josephus, and this is the only early secular reference. And secular, he's really Jewish, so it's a religious right. reference, but he's writing on behalf of the Roman Empire that James, the brother of Jesus, was put to death during the reign of Ananias. Now, what's so interesting about this claim is Josephus writes it. It's not a section about Jesus. It's not really even a section about James. It's about the ruler who steps in and becomes a high priest, Ananias, and he steals it during this small moment that he had, and he messes things up, so he's put to death. Mm-hmm. And it's incidentally thrown in there that he has James and a few others killed and and essentially martyred. So, again, this is not – if you're an early Christian and you're making up a source, you're not just going to flippantly throw something in there that's incidental, doesn't help establish anything about who Jesus is other than the fact that he has a brother named James. So that's why, although the common reference in the Testimonium Flavianum is highly debated by scholars, whether Josephus really refers to the death of Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, etc. Yeah. This, this passage is not debated. Almost all scholars that I could find agree that it's genuine. Now, the only question here, Nick, which is very interesting, we have to be honest with it, is does James qualify as a martyr? Because it seems that he was killed for political reasons, which is very different than being, than somebody saying to him, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. If so, we're going to behead you. Mm-hmm. And just, just for the record, the way this argument is often made, and then I'll come back to James, is people say the early apostles refused to recant all the way until the point of death. And if they recanted, they could have survived their lives. There's no record. <laughs> early and reliable that any of the apostles were told, if you just deny the name Jesus, you could, you could survive, you know, we won't kill you. That's just, we just simply can't establish that historically. But back to James, here's the interesting question. He's operating. And here's why I think he qualifies as a martyr. Okay. So think about this for a second. James is publicly proclaiming that, the person of Jesus, who was a criminal against the Roman state, was put to death as an enemy of the state, has risen from the grave. Mm-hmm. He's following a persecuted Christian in a tradition of the Jews who had been persecuted, and they expected that the prophets would be killed and put to death. John the Baptist was put to death. We have in Acts 12, too, James, um, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, put to death. He's publicly proclaiming a faith in which was based upon the death of its founder as a martyr. He knows what this costs him for proclaiming it. And then he's killed publicly by some of the enemies of the Christian faith. So broadly speaking, I do think he qualifies as a martyr. 
Although we have to put a little asterisk there and say it might not be as clear cut as some of the ways that this story is typically told. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's just so important that we do get clear on what people are saying, because if we go out here and say all the apostles were told we can't or, or die, and they are or chose to die instead, or even if we just say 11 chose to die, we can unfortunately have a lot of egg on our faces, and that can make people be skeptical of the rest of what we say. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. There's a lot of lessons I've learned from this. And I was sharing my findings with a pastor when I was doing my dissertation. He's like, so what are you writing on? And I told him the findings. And he goes, and you're going to make a liar out of all of us pastors. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I said, look, that's not my goal. I'm not aiming to make a liar out of somebody. I want to know for myself what the evidence is. And second, I've definitely realized with this research that there's a pretty powerful tendency for us to overstate our case when it comes to apologetics for a variety of reasons. Number one, maybe we don't do our homework. Uh, Number two, maybe we just pass on something we've heard. And number three, maybe because we really want people to be persuaded, so we say things as strongly as we can. Well, people could do this a generation ago before Google and cell phones, but now that people can test this stuff, especially, we need to be that much more careful. Mm -hmm. Let me make one other comment about James that I think is interesting. So the earliest source, James, his death would have been reported to to the year A.D. 62 um, because the procurators Festus and Albinus and the story that we have with James being stoned to death by Josephus. This story is also reported in the second century, although you have a little bit of embellishment added to it by Hegesippus and then again Clement of Alexandria. But then you also have in a Gnostic text called the First Apocalypse of James, and then the Pseudo-Clementines, which is later. So James is the only one. Here's one unique thing I point about James, is you have it in Christian sources, you have it in Jewish sources, and you have in Gnostic sources from at least the first couple centuries that James was somehow stoned to death um, for for his position in early Jerusalem. So to me, that means, gosh, how widespread it is. It's moderately early. Mm-hmm. Good reason to trust this as being a credible historical account. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about another apostle. And of course, everyone, if you wanted to get the whole account, you're going to have to get the book. But uh, let's talk about John, who most people say, John, okay, John wasn't martyred for his faith, but he did die in exile. So John was perhaps, probably John and Thomas were the most interesting apostles to study. Mm. And Thomas was interesting because so many of the historians I had to read were from the East, from India, and they have a different way of doing historiography than many Western scholars do. So that just raised all these different questions and approaches that I hadn't, that, that were new to me. John was interesting because I went into this just assuming that John died as a martyr. I just, I'm sorry, that didn't die as a martyr. He was the only one that died a natural death. I had no questions about that. I thought everybody believed that. What surprised me is there's actually some conservative scholars, and I mean conservative evangelical scholars like Ben Witherington and Richard Bauckham, who think the Apostle John died early 
as a martyr. And that just stunned me. Now, I'm not ultimately persuaded by it. I still think it's improbable that he died as a martyr. And what's interesting is if I could make the case he died as a martyr, it would only make my case that much stronger. But being faithful to the evidence, I wasn't persuaded by it. Now, here's here's the reasons that they give, a couple of reasons. Um, one is you have the passage with Jesus. I think it's in Matthew 10 off the top of my head where James and John um, are walking and they request that they can be at the right hand and left hand of Jesus when he reigns. And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking? Can you drink the cup? And they say, oh, yeah, we can drink the cup. We can be baptized with your baptism. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup. Now, here's the interesting question, Nick. What did he mean by that? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, I've asked a number of New Testament scholars, and a good chunk of them, when I ask it that way, say, oh, to drink the cup means to be martyred. And then I'll say, what about the traditions of John? And a bunch of them stopped and said, oh, good, good point. So if you look in the Old Testament, if you look, and I document some of this in the book, in some sources of that time, like other Jewish sources, to drink the cup typically meant, are you willing to die and face the wrath and fate that I am going to face? Well, if so, we have James dying in Acts 12 too. This is one of the clearest cases in the New Testament that James was explicitly put to death. Mm -hmm. What about John? Was Jesus a false prophet? Now, I do think that this isn't a determinative argument. I think you can make the case that you drink the cup means can you live the life of suffering and pain that comes with following me, such as picking up the cross. I think you can make that out of the text. I don't think it's unfair, but I think at least a good case could be made that he's saying they would be martyred. The second argument that's given, and this one's given um, specifically by Ben Witherington, is he says, look at the beginning of Acts. John is very prominent with Peter. John and Peter go to check on Philip of uh, not Philip the Apostle, but Philip of, uh, who goes to Samaria, the evangelist. John and Peter both preach for they stand up and speak truth. They both work miracles. But then Peter, John drops off the map and doesn't come back for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Why? Because he was already martyred. Now, with those points being made, Nick, I don't personally buy it. I think he died a natural death, and I think that's the best explanation of John chapter 21. And when John chapter 21, the beloved disciple, is told that his fate is different than, than Peter's, both Bauckham and Witherington will interpret the beloved disciple as not being the apostle John. Witherington thinks it was Lazarus. And Bauckham thinks it was another elder John, not the Apostle John. So those are issues besides what we need to talk about. Mm -hmm. John was just so fascinating. And I found an old, a book only in French that makes an argument for the fate of John based on these calendar claims. And these are all 3rd, 4th, 5th century, where it talks about the martyrdom of James and John. Um, so... One other piece of evidence I'll just throw in there is there's a historian after Eusebius named Philip of Side. And Philip of Side quotes Papias. 
And Papias lived in the early second century, when, at least when he wrote. And according to Philip of Side, he quotes him and then says, as Philip of Side indicates, at the deaths, at the martyrdoms, at the killings of both James and John. Now, what's interesting is that quote does not exist earlier in Eusebius. But if Philip of Side is right, we have a reference to the martyrdom of John in the early second century, only within a couple decades after his death. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is this is a really questionable citing by Philip of Side and one a lot of scholars dismiss. So it's probably not historical. But I just throw that out there. I think you and your listeners will find it fascinating that there's a number of scholars who really believe mm -hmm. John died as a martyr. I'm not persuaded by it, but it's enough to make me pause and say, all right, there's something to this. If there's further evidence, maybe I could be persuaded of it. Yeah, I really wish we did have time to talk about Thomas. That's <clears throat> weird because that's actually one chapter I was really looking forward to. I know Robbie Zacharias has talked a lot about being from near the area where he was supposedly martyred for his faith. And whether that's a likely story or not, where well, you might have to just get Sean's book. Now, if you're interested in Doc McDowell's book, the hardcover version is, right now it's a steal at $114.02 on Amazon. <laughs> if you want to save a little bit, the Kindle is just 108.32. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a deal out there. You know, some of my listeners are probably saying, is there a, a less expensive version coming out sometime? You know what, Nick? I'll give you a deal just for your listeners. I can't, I've been told I can't post this specifically online, so I won't give the details. But if any of your listeners want, I can get it for you half off plus shipping, which will save you 50, 60 bucks. Now it'll still cost you 50 bucks. And the reason is just because it's an academic book. Mm -hmm. That's how it's, you know, Ashgate is a, now bought out by Rutledge. It's a secular academic press that does very high quality work. Mm -hmm. But if you email me through my website, seanmcdowell.org, email in, it'll go to my assistant, he'll forward it to me. I can send you a link and a code where you can get it for 50% off. So if any of your listeners really say, all right, it's worth it for me, I want to get it, um, I can send you uh, personally, I'll send you a, a link and a code uh, to get it for that rate. And they need to mention like they heard it on Deeper Waters or something? Yeah, just tell me exactly where you heard it and why, and then I can I can send it to you. Okay, well, Dr. McDowell, it's been great having you. Unfortunately, you know, time's coming in. Do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, thank, thanks for asking. I blog probably three, four times a week on apologetic issues, cultural issues, worldview issues, student issues. Uh, I have a ton of videos that are up. I tweet regularly. Every day I tweet out articles and ideas. I don't want to waste your time. I want to be a resource of good material that is out there. Um, but if you want kind of a hub for a lot of this, it's just seanmcdowell.org, seanmcdowell.org. And uh, you can find find it all there, as well as links to the different books and uh, um, curriculum pieces that I've done as well. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for a Deeper Waters audience? Um. Sure. Let, let me just sum up the argument. I think here's the argument in a nutshell, is that the apostles spent time personally with Jesus. They saw them with their own eyes. 
as we look in the beginning of Acts, they were all willing to suffer and willing to die for that conviction. We don't have any record that any of them recanted their faith, and we do have good reason to believe that at least some of them were martyred. This doesn't prove Christianity is true. Just like you said, Nick, we don't want to overstate this. But it shows the apostles really believed it. They Mm -hmm. were sincere. So this helps to establish their credibility. And if if a skeptic wants to dismiss the faith, they're going to have to go another route, such as hallucinations or some other theory. But the idea that the apostles stole the body or that this is a conspiracy and they didn't really believe it made it up, I think it's just strongly uh, contradicted by the Mm -hmm. earliest accounts that we have of their willingness to suffer and the evidence that they did suffer. And in fact, some of them really did die as martyrs. Well, Dr. McDowell, it's been great having you here and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Nick, I appreciate it. Keep up the good work, my friend, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. I'd like to remind everyone that next week, hopefully, it's still working, but hopefully we'll have Tom Gilson talking about his book, Critical Conversations, How to Talk to Your Teenagers About Homosexuality. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>